Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. We are talking about feeling better, how self-worth improves your relationships and beats depression. Alrighty then, let's get to it with my first guest today, Lori Gottlieb. My guest today is psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author, Lori Gottlieb, who happens to also be the Atlantic Weekly's Dear therapist advice column. Lori, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, it is a pleasure. You have written a new book, which is such a great read. It's called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. And in reading the book, what I find so compelling about the story, besides just great writing and your wisdom, is the self-disclosure aspect. Right. Yes. There's a lot of self-disclosure in this book <laughs> and, and a lot of discussion about how it happens in the therapy room, too. So talk about you as the therapist sitting on the couch as the client. Right. So in maybe you should talk to someone. I end up going through having sort of an unexpected crisis in my life, and I end up as a therapist going to therapy. And it's a very interesting experience going to therapy when you're a therapist, because when you're sitting on the couch, you're, you're definitely just a person in the room. You're a civilian. You're not an expert. You, you, you're just a human. And I think that, you know, it was really interesting to see somebody else help me see my blind spots and then how that helped me kind of go into the therapy room afterward to go help other people. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, when you ask about self-disclosure, I talk about it a lot in the book, but it's really interesting that it's very strategic in terms of, you know, what we want to say and why we would do that. I think so that, you know, nobody wants to go to a therapist who's talking about their personal life. That's just, you know, creepy and irrelevant. But I think sometimes there are good reasons that we might do it, um, especially for people who feel kind of alone in their predicament or don't really see the the universality of what they're struggling with. And I think the therapist talking a little bit about what they have been through gives hope to the patient. Right. It does. I mean, I wouldn't talk about my own struggles with, with my patients. I would never do that, but I would, you know, I think there, there are times when, for instance, somebody is struggling with a parenting issue and it helps them to know that I'm a parent and that I, you know, that I understand the complexities of, of having kids. I think, you know, I talk about in the book that, that there was a woman whose, whose child had Tourette syndrome and this therapist also had a child with Tourette's and that helped the patient to know that this therapist really, really got it, you know, really gets that experience, even if they have differences 
um, you know, in the specifics of their experiences. But in another example that I use in the book, you know, somebody came in to a therapist and that person's father had committed suicide and this therapist's father had also committed suicide, but he never told his patient that because in this case, he didn't think it would be helpful. And in fact, it could be harmful. So I think it, it just it just depends on, you know, why why are you disclosing the information? It isn't in the interest of the patient because you never want you never want it to feel gratuitous. Talk a little bit about Wendell, the quirky psychologist yeah. named Wendell. <laughs> <laughs> so the therapist that I go to, whom I call Wendell in the book, you know, I first of all, it's it's surprisingly hard for a therapist to find a therapist because you can't go to somebody that you know. And you can't go to somebody that's sort of, you know, related to your professional life. So you can't go, you know, I couldn't go see another therapist in my suite of therapists. I couldn't go see anybody that I refer to or that I get referrals from. I couldn't go to anybody that I go to case conference with. So, and I couldn't go to a friend. So, you know, <laughs> really, who do I go to? And it had to be someone who's completely outside of my my professional and personal life. And especially because friends are the worst in terms of, <laughs> you know, who you could get advice from. Because your friends always want to back you up, right? So you say, oh, my gosh, you know, my partner did this or my boss did this or my, you know, my mother did this. And your friend will be like, yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, they always take your side. And that's what happened also in, in the incident in the book. And so, you know, a therapist is going to help you look at it from a very objective opinion. They're going to help you see, you know, what's going on in a way that your friends who just kind of blind you back you up won't. So Wendell was this person that I, I got through, you know, this very funny, I, I talk about in the book how I end up in his office, but it was like, I had to kind of say, you know, to a friend that I'm looking for a referral for a friend, a guy, <laughs> so that she would never <laughs> suspect it was me. And he at first seems like he came from therapist central casting, you know, like the cardigan, the khakis, the, you know, the whole thing. And he was this really quirky guy and very unusual, but very, very experienced and not afraid to bring his personality into the room. And I think that 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 made him so effective because he could just be him and not kind of following that, that, you know, nobody really does the tabula rasa blank slate. Nobody wants to talk to a wall. And so you want a person who's a real human being in the room with you. And he was very much that, but in a way that inspired me to bring even more of my own personality into the room when I was with my own patients. And so Wendell had to be in a different zip code, I take it. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't that far from my office. I didn't go to a different town or anything. But, you know, he was just in a different kind of circle from mine. And so that was really helpful because he didn't he didn't overlap with my world at all. So the struggles that you brought to Wendell, which are really, I think, are the everyday struggles of being human, right? The, yes. The struggles about desire and need, guilt and redemption, meaning and mortality, loneliness and love. Did it help you reappraise or reframe how you work with your clients? Oh, absolutely. I think that the questions that I was bringing to Wendell were very much the questions that people were bringing to me, not necessarily in their specifics, but, you know, these questions about who am I and what do I want in life and what is my purpose here? And it, it, it's, it's not navel gazing at all. It's very much about how can my relationships be better? How can I be a better person to other people? 
you know, what are the patterns that are going on in my life that I'm not even seeing, but that keep getting in my way? How am I self-sabotaging and I don't even realize it? You know, what are the things that I'm doing that I'm doing not just in my romantic relationships, but in my relationships with my parents or my children or my colleagues? Who am I and how can I understand myself better so that I can live a better life and I can be a better person in the world. So as I mentioned, you write an advice column for The Atlantic. You write mm-hmm. the, the Dear Therapist advice column weekly. Yeah. You're also a contributing editor to The Atlantic. You write for the New York Times Magazine. You get around, girl. You write a lot on mental health topics. You're in the media constantly on the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, Dr. Phil, CNN, NPR, and on and on and on. What are the top issues that people write to you about? I think everybody wants to be loved. And I think that no matter what the issue is, ultimately it comes down to, I think, two things people write in about fear and love. What are their fears and how can they be loved or how can they love? They have trouble loving sometimes too. So I think that, I think that, you know, relationships and connection are really what people want in life. And I think how they express themselves and how they end up being loved and loving are, are very much sort of top, you know, their top concerns. In the, in the book, we, I talk about how Irvin Yalom, who's a, a very well-known psychiatrist, he's now in his 80s, um, has written many wonderful books. You know, he talks about sort of the four ultimate concerns, you know, and that loneliness, mortality, freedom. And because interestingly, we want to be free, but we're, we're afraid of the responsibility of the freedom that we have and love, right? And desire. And so those are really our ultimate concerns. And I think those are underlying pretty much every letter I get at, at Dear Therapist um, for the column and also what people bring into the therapy room and, and what I talk about with the four very different people that I write about in the book. I read about four very different patients and their struggles. And they're completely, you know, they seem like completely different people. They have, you know, from, from a 20 something who can't stop hooking up with the wrong guys, including somebody in the waiting room to, <laughs> you know, a, um, a woman who's about to have her 70th birthday and her adult children won't talk to her. And she, she lives with tons of regret and thinks she might end her life on her 70th birthday if things don't get better. Is she my you know, parents' to, neighbor? <laughs> do you have that? You know, someone like that? Yeah, I do. I do. Really? Yeah. Wow. You know, and I think as you get to know these people, I mean, you know, there's a, a young woman who's a newlywed and, and she just got married and she's diagnosed with cancer. And there's a, a, a you know, a Hollywood producer who seems like a complete asshole when you first meet him. And then when you find out, you know, sort of more about his life, you know, I really come, you know, I think everybody will come to love him and who reads the book. And I think, I think these people all seem com- like completely different people, but they're all struggling with some of the same very universal human desires and fears and, and issues. And so I think that that's what I was trying to do in the book was, you know, and, and I'm struggling with some of them too in my own therapy and that I talk about in the book. So I think, I think that I'm, I'm talking about our commonality as opposed to our differences when, when I'm writing, whether it's in, you know, the magazines or newspapers that you've mentioned or in maybe you should talk to someone. I'd love to read an excerpt from one of your case notes. This is about John, the asshole. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Patient reports feeling 
quote, stressed out, end quote, and states that he is having difficulty sleeping and getting along with his wife, expresses annoyance with others and seeks help, quote, managing the idiots, end quote. And then he yeah. says, <laughs> and then you further go on to describe that he says to you that you'll be like my mistress, he suggests at the end of our first session, as he hands me a wad of cash and explains that he prefers to pay this way so his wife doesn't know he's in therapy. Or actually, more like my hooker. No offense, but you're not the kind of woman I choose as a mistress, if you know what I mean. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, he's not. You know, it's so funny because a supervisor said to me when I was training that there's something likable in everyone. And I didn't believe her. I was like, no, that, that can't be true. There's not something likable in everyone. But she was saying that once you really get to know people and you get to hear their stories. And, and I think, you know, our lives are constructed through narrative. We come in with a certain story. And once you get to know, once you edit that story with them a little bit, so this is where the writing and the therapy come together that, you know, I feel like as a therapist, my job is really partly to be an editor because people come in with faulty narratives um, and very skewed perspectives on sort of what their story is and very limiting. And they're very trapped by these stories. And I help them to kind of reframe their stories so that they can see, you know, is the protagonist moving forward or, or going in circles? Um, who are the major characters? Who are the minor characters? You know, what's really going on? And so I think with his story, once I got to know his story, he became extremely likable. You know, I say in the book that, that you know, you should take all the world's leaders and just like, get them in a room and share their vulnerabilities and their stories and, you know, world peace would ensue. Because I think it's really hard not to like somebody once you get to know them deeply. Well, when you meet them in that heart space, right, there, yeah. there is no animus in that place. Right. And so it's very different from how he defends himself from, you know, his, his pain and the way that he, he's so off-putting. He really... You know, he's just, he's just an asshole. He's just, you know, um, and, and he treats me with, he's so insulting to me and he's so narcissistic and he thinks he's so, you know, that he said everybody else is an idiot, you know, from, you know, the person who like, you know, stops at the yellow light. He says no sense of urgency and, you know, to, you know, all of the people he's a, you know, he works in Hollywood and all of the people on his, on his show and, you know, they're all idiots and nobody knows better than he does. You know, he's very off-putting and he's, he's always sort of insulting me. He calls me Sherlock, but then you come to know him and he, and you can see, you see these like a minor, you know, seeing like a glimmer of, of something, you see like a, a glimmer of his humanity and, and you really just start to kind of chip away at the defenses and you see the beauty underneath and you see like a completely different person. We're going to take a break and we'll return to the conversation with my guest, Lori Gottlieb, a psychotherapist, New York Times bestselling author and the author of the weekly Dear Therapist column at the Atlantic Weekly. To learn more about her and her work, please visit lauriegottlieb.com. On Twitter, she can be reached at lauriegottlieb in the number one. And on Facebook, Gottlieb Lori. The book we're talking about is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Ooh, 
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about feeling better, how self-worth improves our relationships and beats depression with my guest today, Lori Gottlieb. Let's come back to the conversation. Her newest book is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. This book is now being optioned for TV by Eva Longoria for ABC. This is so cool, Lori. Yeah, you know, it's nonfiction, but there's so many great stories that they can then, you know, I think the world is such an interesting world for a TV show because the stories are endless. And, you know, while we wouldn't necessarily be using, you know, people's in the book, their real stories, but we wouldn't necessarily be doing that on TV. But certainly the the same kind of emotional storytelling, I think, is it's it's a really good place for it. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to ask you a question. As the therapist, outside of the office and the time that you spend with your clients, what do what do therapist people do with their lives? Right. That's that's one of the things that I really wanted to show and maybe you should talk to someone. You know, there's a there's a chapter in the book called Embarrassing Public Encounters where, you know, I talk about how it's really different seeing your therapist out in the world. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you see your teacher at Best Buy, you know, and you're like, wait, what are you, you're here and you're, you're married and you have kids and you know, what is that? Um, it's, it's just completely out of context, but with a therapist, even more so because you've, you've shared such intimate details of your life. And, you know, so it's interesting for the, for the patient to see the therapist there, but it's also interesting for the therapist because we're a little bit, you know, it's like now people get to see our lives and, um, you know, you don't want to be, you know, a friend of mine, she, she was in Starbucks when her OB called and, and told her that the baby she was carrying was not viable. And she just burst into tears. She did not know that one of her patients was in the Starbucks at that moment. And the patient, then she saw that person, the person saw her cry and the person never came back. So I think like, you know, people have a reaction to seeing, you know, us as real human beings out in the world. A friend of mine who who was a, a child psychologist was in the bakery with her young daughter who was, you know, having a meltdown while her another, you know, a little kid she was seeing was there with her mom. And it wasn't it wasn't like the best the best moment for that to happen. You know, I was in the bra section of a department store when when, you know, wow. <laughs> when I ran into it. So, you know, there's just things like that where you you know it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit uncomfortable, I think, for both people. Yeah. Hashtag awkward. Right. I mean, it's yes, just... yes. That's why I call that chapter embarrassing public encounters. So what about when you get together with a bunch of therapists? Like what really goes on? Yeah. So, you know, we work alone in a room and I think that people don't consider the fact that we don't really get, you know, other people get feedback from their colleagues, you know, in other professions. And we don't really get that because no one's in the room with us. So not only do we not get, you know, praise for a job well done, but we don't get feedback on what we can do better. And I think we're always trying to do better. And so we have these, most people belong to weekly consultation groups where they're informal groups. You get together with other therapists and, you know, somebody presents a case each week and you get to talk about things that are challenging or patients that you want feedback on. So one of the chapters in the book is about my consultation group, and it's about a patient that I feel like I can't help, that no matter what I'm doing and what I am what I try with her, it just backfires or she's unhappy with how the therapy's going, but she won't leave. 
You know, so, you know, when I suggest to her that if it's not helping, I, I don't want to waste her time. And if everything that I'm doing is, you know, not helpful to her, then I would rather refer her to somebody else or have her go see somebody who might be more helpful to her. But what I suspect is going on, and some, sometimes it is me, sometimes I'm not, I just, you know, we're human and we connect with someone or we don't connect with someone. But I really felt like I could help her if, you know, and I felt like part of her problem was she was having the same exact problem with everybody else in her life. And so usually what people do in the therapy room, they do with the, the relationships that they have outside. And she wasn't able to see that. And I was trying to find a way to help her see that without her feeling defensive or shamed or judged. And so my consultation group would give me advice on, you know, what I could try with her, but everything, no matter what these people suggested, and they're, you know, they're all experienced therapists, it just didn't work. And so I really give people kind of the behind the scenes of that too, because I don't think that people get to see that. And I think it's really important that people see that, you know, sometimes we fail people, even though we don't want to. Yeah. Again, going back to the humanness of the whole thing, you know, right, right. It's a mess. Life is messy. (laughs) Sometimes it it is. But I I, I think that, you know, I think that the, the, the reward of being a therapist is that most of the time we do help people. Most of the time people find it really useful. So in the, and they might not at first, but, but eventually we get there. And I think that with her, what was really frustrating was that I felt bad, you know, like I carry that around with me because I want her to have a better life. And she was young, you know, she, 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 she could definitely turn things around. And if she could realize what she was doing and why, you know, lots of people were having the same reaction to her that, that I was having to her. And so it was, it was hard because I felt like if I just, almost like if you could just find the key, you know, you could, her life could be so much different. And so I, I think that people don't realize that we think about them during the week. It's not just that those 50 minutes. It's that, yeah. you know, we, we walk around during the week and they pop into our minds and we think about them and we think about how we can help them and, you know, what we can do differently or what we could do better. Or, or even when things go well, we, we, we're so happy for them that, you know, we think about that and we can't share that with anybody because it's all confidential. Like with the the cancer patient, right? Like when she died, I couldn't share my grief with anybody because at her funeral, everybody knew they all, they all could tell stories about her and they all knew her. And I was sort of there as an outsider. And she had, she had asked me to be there, which is why I was there, but I kind of sat in the back and I was separate from everybody else. I'm having an image of that. And that is difficult, you know, wanting, wanting to, to share and not being able to do so. Right. Right. And being, and with her, you know, seeing all of these people tell these stories about her that I didn't know, because we talked about different things in the room. I didn't know those funny stories that people were telling, but I had these amazing experiences with her that I just, and, and my own, my own sadness too, you know, they got to kind of grieve together and I had to grieve her alone. And, you know, that's an aspect I think of, of being a therapist that a lot of people might not be aware of. And, and the way that, you know, when she said to me, will you stay with me until I die? And I go through this Mm. experience with her of, her coming to terms with her own death at such a young age. And it was a life-changing experience for me. And I still think about her all this, all this time later. And so I think, you know, those are the, the experiences that um, I wanted to share in the book because I wanted people, I wanted more people to be able to go through that experience too. I think it will change their lives and help them 
see their lives differently. It really changed me and how I see my life. Which leads me to talk about happiness, you know, out of a very difficult set of circumstances with this patient and an unhappy ending. I Did it reframe the way that you think about and access happiness? Absolutely. I think most people who come to therapy come because they want to be happier. Something's not working. But what they they don't necessarily leave with the same idea of happiness that they may have come in with. Thank goodness. I think, <laughs> right. I think that so many people think about happiness in terms of, you know, they don't think of life being more complicated than that. They because they're suffering and they they just want they just want relief. But what they leave with, I think, is a, is a way of feeling more more at peace with themselves and the world, having smoother relationships having more love in their lives in all kinds of ways and not necessarily like feeling joy all the time, but finding much more joy in places they didn't find it before. And so even with this young woman who was dying, you know, she really, you know, she was angry and sad and raging and all of that was true, but she also found these aspects of herself that she never had, you know, had any access to before because, you know, life goes on in the way that it does. And she really got in touch with, well, what was important to her? What mattered to her most? And she then set out to find those things. And and I go through that, that kind of journey with her. And she makes me think about my own life because why do we need a death sentence to think about what's important to us and how we want to live our lives? We shouldn't have to wait for that because, Mm -hmm you know, life has a hundred percent mortality rate. I know this is a very cheery conversation on your. Oh no, we're, we're swinging back the other way, girl. I'm going to make sure we (laughs) go out with, with a laugh. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, but I will say that, you know, I think that thinking about death does make us happier. It really makes us focus on what's important to us and what we want to do so that you don't put off, Oh, that thing that I really, that dream that I had, that thing that I really wanted to do, I'll do that next year. No, because you don't know how or when you're going to die. And you also don't know what your life circumstances are going to be then. What are you waiting for? And I think that that was the big question that that experience, um, and maybe you should talk to someone, helped me with was, what are you waiting for? I think so many times we have very good reasons, like very sort of rational, logical reasons that we're not doing something, but really it's our fear. And so it really helped me to say, oh, you know, there's like, I don't want to give away what happens in the book with, with my story, but you know, there's a certain point in the book where I'm like stuck and stuck and stuck and stuck. And then finally one day I'm like, what am I doing? I don't need to be doing this thing that I don't want to be doing. And I send off this email that, you know, and I just change everything. And the result ends up being actually the book, you know, this book. I mean, I guess the moral of the story is do not postpone joy. And we do that. You know, we're so conditional with our our happiness. And I'm not talking about the saccharine sweet happiness, but that sort of visceral contentment with life. Right, right. There's there's a word that I have in the book called cherophobia, which is fear of happiness, right? Fear of joy. So many people don't realize it, that we're actually afraid of being too happy. You know, there are people who are afraid that, you know, if they, if something good happens, then something bad will happen or, you know, it won't last. And then the pain will be, you know, why even put yourself out there? Because if it goes badly, then the pain will be too much to bear. Or yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. Or I told you so I told you it couldn't work, you know, so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
right? Like, what were you thinking that you could have that kind of happiness? What were you thinking? Um, That's the, the voice in their head. And so a lot of people who, especially people who grew up with kind of unpredictable parents or unpredictable joy in their life, you know, where the joy usually, you know, somehow something got in the way of it. They are actually, they don't realize it, but they're afraid of happiness. So they make choices that that get in their way, even as adults, except this time they're the ones getting in the way instead of their parents or, mm. or you know, whatever the circumstances were growing up. We're nearly out of time. And I want to end the interview with a little bit of the teaser, because in the book, maybe you should talk to someone, you write about cyber stalking Wendell. <laughs> I do. Mortifying, but true. Wendell, the therapist. Yes, I did Google stock my therapist. Yes, I did. But I think that, you know, it's so people do that, you know, like people, I know that people Google me and I write about this too in the book that, you know, they'll drop something, they'll slip up and they'll drop something. And I'm like, oh, I never mentioned that about my life. And they know something about my life. So they have Googled me. Yikes. Right, but it's normal. It's normal to be curious, right. and I think that's what that's what sort of happens with with me with Wendell. Is at a certain point, I end up googling him and finding out things that I wish I could unknow. Not because I learn anything particularly strange or off putting, but just because I don't really want to know. You think you want to know about your therapist, but really. It, it creates a lot of, you know, like you start editing yourself in the therapy room because you don't want them to know that you know this information. And then also, you know, there was something, his father had died suddenly of a heart attack, and which I found out on Google. And I was talking about my love for my father, and I felt really awkward talking about that with him, knowing that, you know, he had had this experience with his father. But he didn't know that I knew this about him. And so I would edit myself until finally one day I, I confessed. <laughs> and you'll have to read the book. Maybe you should talk to someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. This is kind of like an inexpensive voyeuristic thrill. You know, you buy the book and you get sort of this inside glimpse to the therapist's world and her life that is both amusing and heartwarming and eye-opening and transformational. So thank you, Lori Gottlieb, for sharing your time with us. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Oh, I feel the same way. To learn more, go visit Lori over at LoriGottlieb.com, on Twitter at LoriGottlieb1, and on Facebook, the name is reversed. It's Gottlieb Lori. Here comes the break. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about feeling better, how self-worth improves our relationships and beats depression with my next guest, Dr. Ron Frey. He is the author of Feeling Better, Beat Depression and Improve Your Relationships with Interpersonal Psychotherapy. Welcome, Dr. Frey. 
Thank you for the invitation. Great to be on with you. Uh, well, tell me a little bit about how you got into this work, because I think in reading your bio, you're a badass, but I want you to tell it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I was uh, trained as a forensic psychologist back in grad school, and I had a choice between learning interpersonal psychotherapy or the standard cognitive behavior therapy, which basically looks at your thoughts and what's wrong with your thoughts. And I decided to go a different track. I decided to look at relationships and move away from blaming your thinking and looking more closely at how you interact with people and uh, and how that impacts your feelings and how that impacts their feelings and got trained in IPT and, and the rest is history. So uh, that's uh, how I got into IPT. And now I'm trying to share this model with the rest of the world. So that's uh, that's how it all kind of came together. Well, and I think there's one more element here I want to share with our listeners, and that is that you are the former acting chief psychologist for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That's to me, makes you a badass. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I've worked with cons and with cops. So uh, I have a lot of experience working on two sides of the, of the I guess, the same coin. Um, yeah, exactly. When we talk about interpersonal psychotherapy, share with our listeners what that exactly is and means. Well, interpersonal psychotherapy looks at how your mood is impacted by the relationships around you. So it's a little bit different than the cognitive model, which basically looks at your thoughts, what's going on in your brain. Uh, we actually look at um, your relationships and how you relate with people, how you communicate with people and how that impacts your mood. And uh, the developers of interpersonal psychotherapy, Clermont and Wiseman, uh, really uh, speak a lot about treating depression from that perspective. So uh, what we believe is that if you can improve your interpersonal relationships, if you can improve your interpersonal style, that's how you relate with people, how you communicate and listen, it will have a direct impact on your mood and it will make you feel better. And clearly the research has showed that in the laboratory and in many university settings and uh, and we're taking it out of the lab and spreading it to uh, to society so that they can benefit from this model. Um, I want to ask a few more questions about this because I'm thinking of the case of the classic depressed person who lacks motivation, can't get out of bed, is not functioning well, and sees the world around them as a really difficult, challenging place. And to ask of them to go and relate to the world differently is a huge challenge. Of course it can be done, but I'm curious how how one motivates someone to do this. That's a really good question and that is a, a big challenge that, you know, clinicians, doctors, psychologists have with patients and of course if you are the patient, if you are struggling with those those feelings and lack of motivation and like just can't even get motivated to get out of bed as you've mentioned, that is a really hard kind of first step to to take. What we do in IPT, and, and you'll find this early on in the book as well, is that we first recognize that you have an illness. So the first thing is, is that if you're really feeling down, and if you're really lacking in motivation, if you feel hopeless, that is an actual illness. It's like a broken leg, and we'll use those type of analogies. So if you have a broken leg, you're going to go to the doctor, and you're going to get treatment for it. And, uh, and what we are saying, you know, in this book, in this model is that if you're, if you're having symptoms of depression, which includes hopelessness, lack of motivation, difficulties concentrating, impaired sleep, those type of symptoms, that's an illness that requires treatment. And there's excellent treatment for it. And IPT is one of those treatment models. So you can go and see a psychologist or you can just pick up this book and work through it 
week by week because that's the way it's been written. And um, it'll give you a step-by-step um, uh, approach to start um, getting you to move forward and to, and to feel better. Um, I like what you said, that you can pick up the book because there is a roadmap um, through self-care and self-help. I mean, if somebody is suicidal, of course, and having lots of thoughts of killing themselves, they need to get in to see a doctor. However, if you're uh, sort of the average depressed person, and I think that sounds a little corny to put it in those terms, who is lacking the motivation, hard to get out of bed, hard to jumpstart the engine, and it's been going on for uh, a period of what? what is the marker, two weeks or more? Yes, two weeks or more. That, yeah. there, that there are things one can do to help oneself um, rather than wallow. Yeah, you don't have to wait until all the wheels have fallen off the cart, right? So if you're experiencing <laughs> some of those symptoms, um, certainly you can nip it in the bud by going uh, using some of the techniques that we describe uh, in the book and uh, and start um, you know uh, putting out the small fires before they turn into large infernos. So definitely. Um, it can be used by people who have some mild to moderate symptoms, or if you're living with somebody or if you know somebody that is really struggling with suicidal ideation or with, you know, very severe, you know, symptoms of depression, you can use this book to help them as well. Uh, so it can be used in that way as well. Um, what are some examples of skills that IPT can help develop? Like maybe give us a couple of interventions. Well, I think the first skill is A, to recognize when you need help. Right. So recognizing that going through depression or having symptoms of depression is something that probably all of us experience at some point in life. And so it's important not to um, panic. It's important to recognize those symptoms and then to address them. And then, of course, how do you address them? Well, if you if you work through uh, the feeling better uh, model, the IPT model, uh, basically, what you're going to do is you're going to start looking at your interpersonal world. What does it look like? Who do you surround yourself with? Who do you talk to? Who do you not talk to? And so what we do is we create an inventory of interpersonal relationships. And we look at very close and intimate relationships that you may be having or that you may not be having. And we also look at some more distant relationships. That is, relationships that could be improved, uh, people that you may want to bring closer into your sphere and uh, look at how you do that. What are some techniques you can use to improve your communication with the people around you? So building that interpersonal inventory is a really important component of IPT. But what if the people that one is close to, those relationships are very unsatisfying, they're highly charged and contentious, and one might not possess the awareness to identify that maybe the relationships themselves are not healthy ones to be in. When you're in a close relationship with someone and you have very different expectations and values, that can certainly lead to symptoms of depression. And so what we do in IPT therapy is we give you the tools to first look at that relationship, look at the expectations and values objectively, and to give you some techniques and ways to negotiate with that particular person of how you can get together back onto the same page. So I'm going to give you a quick example how this may actually uh, play out for a lot of your listeners. If you think back at the time when you were dating somebody and all the communication was going on, you know, the first couple of dates, 
and you're talking about your dreams, your expectations and values, and you recognize that you have things in common or you negotiate things so that you're basically on the same page together, you have a wonderful relationship. And then what tends to happen for many people, including myself, is that, you know, you have children, you have jobs, you have promotions, you have transfers to different parts of the country. I mean, just a lot of things go on. And what happens is that that communication that you have with that person that you're close to starts to be put on the back burner as you're tending to all these other needs. And what happens is that you start to kind of separate and your expectations and values become a little bit more uh, different. And then before you know it, you're on completely different pages. So interpersonal psychotherapy will give you the opportunity to stop, look at your expectations and values you have with this other person, renegotiate. And if you can renegotiate and get back on the same page, you're going to feel better and you're going to have a more positive relationship. Or you're going to uh, realize that, in fact, it may be better to end this relationship or change it uh, significantly uh, and surround yourself with people that, you know, you do currently share similar expectations and values with. I want to ask you a question about families, not not partners, not the, the people that we choose to have relationship with, but the family dynamic. Because in the work that I do in the um, addiction and trauma recovery sphere, we see so many of the clients have such difficult family dynamics, and they want relationship with their parents and their siblings and their children in some cases. But it is just so difficult when they've got these other struggles that they are contending with. And now the struggles that you're uh, talking about are addiction struggles. Is that what you're referring addiction, to? Addiction, addiction and trauma, you know, albeit uh, combat trauma from war or trauma resulting from violent crime. Right. Well, when we look at things like addiction, we look at it, the IPT looks at, IPT therapists will look at it in the form of, your, you know, you're self-medicating. Uh, you're trying to escape from having those difficult conversations. And really what we want you to do is is have those difficult conversations. Now, you may not be able to have it with that particular person that you really need to have it with. But if you look closely at your inventory, there may be a person, a friend, a relative, somebody, you know, a, a, another soldier, another police officer that has may have gone through a very similar journey. And by having that difficult conversation with them and kind of going back and forth to see how they manage those difficult times, it can really have a positive impact on your mood and may even facilitate you being able to have those difficult conversations with your loved ones. So that's that's the approach that we take. So what it seems to be coming to the forefront for me and what you're saying is that that learning to have these conversations with someone that you can form a connection with, whether it's, whether it is the therapist or whether it is a, a peer, or it doesn't necessarily have to be that person with whom you're directly in relationship, but talking about it, normalizing it, being validated, sort of that seen, heard, understood angle is pivotal in, in this process. Yes, yeah, very important. And that's why it's so important to take the time to really look at the people you surround yourself with. Uh, because you may not, there may be an issue, for example, of like psychological safety. You just may not be comfortable having this important conversation with, with your loved one because it just may be too much risk to have that conversation. But you may be able to have it with somebody who is a little bit more 
uh, removed from the situation. And that will give you the opportunity to learn about, you know, what your expectations and values are, how you can communicate with that, uh, that loved one uh, from somebody who looks at it from perhaps a different, with a different set of lenses. I love the words you just use, psychological safety. It's not, those are not words that are often put together in conversations like this, you know, in, in media, but it is the, it is the foundation of our emotional well-being. Yeah, there's risk involved in conversations. And I think with a lot of people who suffer with depression or Simpson's depression, really, it's about overcoming that anxiety, that fear about having those important conversations. That's the biggest hurdle that we have as therapists, actually, is to get them to overcome that, that uncertainty. But uncertainty and change is really the only constant in life. And so we have to be able to work with our relationships and change our expectations and values subtly through our life journey, because that's just the way life is. We, we, we don't live in a static world. Indeed. And nothing is staying the same even around here. We're going to jump off for a break. But before we do, I want to once again um, say thank you to our guest who is going to come back. But Dr. Ronald J. Frey is the co-author of Feeling Better, Beat Depression and Improve Your Relationships with Interpersonal Psychotherapy. To learn more about his work and the book, please visit www interpersonalpsychotherapy.com. On Twitter, he can be found at FB the book and on Facebook, feeling better the book. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound and HarvestingHappiness.com Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Talking about feeling better, how self-worth improves our relationships and beats depression. My guest is Dr. Ron Frey, and let's return to that conversation. So, Ron, before the break, we were talking about the, the basics behind interpersonal psychotherapy, but I'd love to ask you how you bring clients or patients into this sphere who might be resistant to kind of going into this dangerous territory of talking about one's feelings. Well, certainly having worked with lots of police officers and, sh and soldiers, one of the groups of, of individuals that have difficulty talking about feelings and, and being more reflective about their interpersonal relationships are those, those people that work in those occupations, but also men in general. Um, yeah. There's the, uh, <laughs> it's not, not a natural conversation for a lot of guys to have. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, in the book we have a section 
that kind of pops in and out called guy talk. And, and that's really an opportunity for the female readers of this book to look at particular chapters or techniques in this book and say, how can I sell this to my man, right? How can I have these type of conversations with the, the men in my life? And it really, there's some good antidotes in, in that book uh, so that they can see that there's a value in having conversations. And that value is identifying emotions and feelings. And that if you can have conversations of that type, it makes people around you feel better. And so that's really um, uh, a way is to is to look at how you can actually use some of these techniques with the men in your world. Well, give, give us a story or two, you know, that, that might be a good illustrative example of breaking somebody open, you know, and I, I use that in a loving way. Hmm. Well, I had a client once years ago who, when we were talking about uh, relationships, I asked him, when's the last time he ever told his wife that he loved her? And he said, he looked at me like perplexed. He said, well, I haven't told her that I loved her for years. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, because I married her. It's obvious, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And so the further that we got into the conversation, uh, I realized that in fact, he never really knew anything really about feelings, like basic feelings about happiness. Love. He, he kind of knew it cerebrally, like in his brain, but he actually never used those words. And so really, um, it was important for me to educate him, I guess, about the importance of, of sharing emotion with somebody. You know, even though you may not think it's really important, the people around you may appreciate it. And if you can use these type of feeling words in the conversations that you have, and it can make somebody feel more connected with you, that's going to make them feel happier and better. And in fact, that will transfer over to you as well. So it was kind of a little bit of a sales pitch for him um, about the importance of sharing feelings and emotions, telling that person that you love, that you love them, um, and, and telling that person that when you're having an intimate conversation with them, that how it makes you feel is an important part of a relationship. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, uh, that actually is not uncommon. I've seen that a lot with men. And, uh, but I remember that case in particular. Oh, it's so interesting because, um, you know, not telling his wife that he loves her, that she should just know because he married her. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of classic, right? Like, you know, I've already closed the escrow. Why would I, why would I have to revisit that? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But we need it. Like as humans, we thrive on this. Really, you know, humans require relationships. It's what makes them uh, feel happy. I mean, the, the research has shown that in the labs and and we see that around us. So really, we're social creatures. We we require relationships. And uh, and sometimes in t like in today's world, for example, um, we sometimes lose some of those important elements. You know, you may have 500 or 1000 Facebook friends, but how many friends do you really have? Like, how many friends do you pick up the phone? And actually call them on their birthday as opposed to just sending them a, you know, a, a quick text message because you got a reminder in your email system. You know, picking up that phone, having a, a conversation and sharing feelings with somebody on that special day is an important thing to do. And those are the type of things that we've kind of forgotten in today's world, unfortunately. And when we talk about depression, you know, when we are in a depressed state, many of us will contract and con you know constrict so we pull back from our social world 
we move away from when really the antidote is to move into, right? To lean, lean forward and into and to connect. That, that's exactly right. And that's, that's why that, that's a really important component of IPT. And that's what we really uh, foster. We cheerlead when we're with our patients to make sure that they start becoming more interpersonally active, even though it's difficult. Uh, because if they don't, they're just going to be stuck with the same feelings, right? So if you don't, if you don't improve your interpersonal functioning, if you don't optimize your, your, your relationships, you're not going to feel better. So we really give the patients a choice. You know, do you want to stay the same way? Do you want to feel depressed or do you want to feel better? And if you want to feel better, here's the recipe. Well, it's interesting uh, when you put it in those terms, I guess then the question then becomes from my view is what does one gaining by staying in the depressed state. If one is unwilling to risk or move forward, because it does require at least a toe in the water of something new, um, what is the gain of remaining where you are? There is a very big gain, and that gain is certainty. And that's the, that's the biggest challenge. In any interpersonal relationship you have with somebody, there is a grayness in that relationship. There is a certain degree of uncertainty. There's a certain amount of risk when you have conversations, intimate conversations with somebody. But if you're not able to assume that risk and take that risk and you want to stay with absolute certainty, you're going to be falling into depression. You know, all relationships are a little bit complicated and they require nurturance and they require uh, they require risk. And that's that's part of, uh, of living a healthy and happy life is the acceptance of that risk, the acceptance of uncertainty and having those conversations to help you know navigate that. And. And work. And work does not have to have a negative connotation. I mean, it can be the, like you say, the nurturance that one has when we work in our gardens. That's right. Exactly. You know, if you don't weed and water and take care and mind and be connected with that earth that you're putting your hands in, that garden's not going to thrive. And I think the relationship is the same. You're exactly right. It's a beautiful analogy. That's exactly how we look at it. Well, we look, you know, we look at the farmer model around here, harvesting, cultivating. <laughs> well, that, that makes sense. It's really, that's what's important, you know, and that's the distinction, the difference between the more cognitive models of therapy, which just looks at what's turning in your head and the interpersonal, which is really about how you're actually tending those relationships around you. What's interesting in the, in the cognitive model about sort of examining and questioning what's going on in the head, right? It's a very internally referenced model. Yes. Whereas what you're talking about is an externally referenced model, figuring out one's place in the world and how we wish to be in those relationships and how we wish to feel as a result of those relationships. It's very interesting because it's different. It's different. And a lot of um, our patients really enjoy this model because it takes away the kind of the blame, right? Because we hear a lot about, well, when you're depressed, there's something wrong with your thinking. It's negative thinking. It's uh, inflexible thinking, irrational thinking. And IPT doesn't look at it that way at all, at all. We look at more external interpersonal relationships. What is your, what are your relationships look like? How do they actually, how are you tending them? What's your interpersonal style like? Are you very like closed? Are you aggressive? Are you collaborative in your style? And we look at, at, at um, relationships as opposed to thoughts. And that's, uh, that, that is a big difference between the two models. Well, it's a beautiful model. You know, because our thoughts can run away with us. Our thoughts take us out of the present moment, whereas our relationships 
if we're living them, we're in it, you know, like we're, we're, we're in action, we're, we're doing it, we're being and doing in those relationships. That's right. And sometimes, like I said, just having conversations with somebody, even if you don't get the, the solution you're looking for in that conversation, just the act of having a conversation, a meaningful conversation with somebody leaves you with um, more positive feelings. And that's a very important step to experience for a lot of people. Let me ask you one more question because we're almost out of time and I want to go back to the duration of um, this kind of approach. The interpersonal psychotherapeutic approach is a more short-term approach. Yes, it's uh, it can run basically 12 to 16 weeks. Um, the model was actually uh, tested against the standard uh, medications that people have uh, been taking for depression and uh, and that's why it's uh, been kind of formatted that way. It was just a, a number which um, the researchers looked at. What can we compare this with? So yes, 12 to 16 weeks, it can really have a really positive impact on your life. Which is, uh, I think, very hopeful. You know, we offer people hope when we can share approaches like this. The book that we've been talking about today is Feeling Better. Beat Depression and Improve Your Relationships with Interpersonal Psychotherapy. I've had the pleasure of having co-author Dr. Ronald J. Frey with me this morning. Uh, to learn more about the work and the book, please visit www.interpersonalpsychotherapy.com, on Twitter at FB The Book, and on Facebook, Feeling Better The Book. Ron, thanks for joining me on the show today. Thank you for the invitation. It was wonderful having this conversation. With oh, you. a pleasure. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Lori Gottlieb and Dr. Ron Frey, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>